Our scripture today is from Psalm 124. If it had not been the Lord who is on our side, let Israel now say, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side when people rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us up alive when their anger was kindled against us. Then the flood would have swept us away, the torrent would have gone over us. Then over us would have gone the raging waters. Blessed be the Lord who has not given us as prey to their teeth. We have escaped like a bird from the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken and we have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. The word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that it is your word and that it is a gift from us and that you have, you have spoken to us. Though you are infinite and unreachable in some ways, Lord, you have crossed the chasm so that we may know you. What a gift, what a grace. Lord, I pray that you would write this psalm and these words unto our hearts that it might shape us to be the faithful people of God in this world. We pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen. I want to start off by saying thank you to, to this church. Uh, I, you know, don't tell the other churches this, but I really, really, really love coming here. I love worshiping with you all. Uh, and for, for so many of that I've met of this church, you have been a real blessing to me and to my family and, and to my ministry. So much so that I, I can say with confidence that without this church, our, our ministry would be hard-pressed. There are individuals and people who support us and pray for us and call us and have even showed up to our, our door when our, when our child Benjamin was born. And for this congregation, I am and my family is deeply, deeply grateful. So thank you. Um, as I prepared for this sermon, I thought of Lord of the Rings as I often do. Uh, it's my favorite movies of all time. And as a kid, my, my favorite movie was The Two Towers. Uh, and in that movie, the kingdom of Rohan uh, is under, a track by, or under attack by a traitor named Saruman. Uh, and he's built this army, and it says that he, he's trained it for one purpose, and that is the destruction of an entire people, down to every last man, woman, and child. They have not come to take prisoners. They have come to kill. And so Rohan retreats to this mountain fortress, and there they await certain death. There, there's a few hundred people against at least 10,000. And, and the, their death is almost assured. Uh, the women and children are brought down into caves and, and they're crying as they hear the marching enemy approach. Uh, the young boys who, who can't even lift their swords are standing on sort of the ramparts just waiting to, to fight creatures better trained, much bigger than them. And, and hope is lost and there is desperation and terror in the air as these forces approach. And as a young person, as a middle schooler, I watched this and I was like so anxious and so afraid as I saw this army come to, 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 to kill these people that I loved. And as we watch this movie, we feel or at least can slightly imagine the terror of this people as they await their destruction. David in the Bible, the king of Israel also experienced an invasion. Psalm 124 describes the situation with poetic language. He says, a people has risen up against us, which is most likely a people called the Philistines. And he says, they would have swallowed us up alive, 
meaning that they were so large, they were so outnumbered by this giant army that they were like a giant animal that could have swallowed them up in one bite, one gulp, and they're gone. The picture of the Philistine army was like a mighty wave that once catapulted toward them would have completely engulfed them. And just like a a sandcastle on the beach as a tsunami approaches, the wave hits, it's so powerful that as the wave goes back, they're utterly gone, wiped from the face of the earth, gone forever. The picture is one of utter destruction and a wiping from the face of the earth. The psalm wants us to feel how certain this is, how certain their destruction, how complete their desperation. But they had not been given to the teeth of their enemy. And of course, the image of being caught in someone's teeth is different than being gulped down in one mouthful. To be in the teeth of the enemy creates a picture of being eaten alive and the tearing and the grinding of teeth on prey by predator. Israel's defeat would have been painful. It would have been horrendous, gruesome, and terrible. But in verse 7, we are surprised. Like a bird trapped in a snare, with death certain, and right around the corner, the snare somehow breaks. And they escape. Israel, too, in real history, in real life, escapes almost certain death and destruction and being erased from all history. But how? How do they escape? How is Israel saved? Well, we learn from 2 Samuel that when David is made king, the Philistines rise up to destroy him, to wipe him and his family off the face of the earth and all its people. But God says to King David, rise up. Rise up against them, and I shall give them into your hand. And David says that in a great reversal of expectation, their army broke through the Philistines like mighty floodwaters. They were expected to be rolled over as if by a flood, but instead God rolled over them like a mighty wave. This event in real history is the event that likely prompts our psalm. Here, uh, he is, David describes in great detail the anguish and the situation that is so dire of his people. But David says in verse 2, If the Lord had not been on our side, if the Lord had not been our side, we would have been swallowed alive. We would have been plowed over by a raging water and wave. But God is to be praised, for he was on the side of his covenant people, and he had helped them. Now, what's really, really cool about the Psalms, at least to me, is it's just what they are. The Psalms, as one professor, you know, hammered into my brain repeatedly in seminary, is the hymn book of Israel. It's the song that the people of God sang, and they were to be sung together uh, by, the people, by the people of God to, to lead them in worship, but also to shape them. The, the, the effect of singing these songs together or in our case, studying this psalm together, is that it shapes us as one people together. It gives us a common story, common beliefs, a common faith, a common God to worship. And as we sing these songs, they shape us. And so Psalm 124 is a psalm of ascent. And a psalm of ascent is something that the people of God would sing together as they traveled, you know, all throughout the country to to Jerusalem, to the temple on their pilgrimage, and they would sing this on that occasion. People, young and old and children and babies and all types of people would sing these songs together and it would remind them of their story. Remind them of who they are, where they came from, and it would shape their hearts to be more like the Lord's. You even see this in verse 1 when he's like, you know, if the Lord was not on our side, let all Israel say, if the Lord had not been on our side. In other words, it's like, you know, 
I don't know, sweet Caroline, everybody now, you know, sweet, and we all sing it together. I don't know why that popped into my head, but here we are. Uh, this is what is happening. He is, he is calling the people to come and sing this song together. Now, why does this matter? Why do I point this out, that this is how the Psalms work? Because by doing so, by singing this song together, we are being shaped together. By studying this song together, we are being shaped together. People, even, you know, five years, 10 years, 20 years after this event, after the writing this psalm, would sing this together and they would see, they would enter in and feel the same terror as their ancestors had. Then they would see the same God that they had worshipped and that they're worshipping now was faithful to people even back then. And now we, thousands of years later, get to be shaped with our ancestors of old to see, to learn, to trust in, and to be shaped by the same God, to turn to the same God in our times of trouble. All who sing this, all generations of people, uh, would become the beneficiaries of this story and what God has done in the past as they become connected to these people, but also to the same God that they worship. And as we read this text, we too receive the benefits and blessings of this story of a God who helps and remains by his people's side. Because they didn't get wiped off the face of the earth, and because these survivors wrote down this story, we too now get to hear about this same God. And we too can put our faith and trust in the Lord who helps his people. Just like them, we deeply need to be the type of people who come to the Lord in our times of trouble. We must come to him for help. Yahweh, the name of the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth, is on our side even to this day. And our same help is in his name. Therefore, just like the Israelites in our psalm, we must learn to look to him and to praise God, but we must also look to him in trouble. We must look to God and praise him for what he's done, but we must also look to him in trouble. So first, we, the people of God, must look to Yahweh and praise him for what he has done. Now again, if you look at this psalm, David makes something clear. If, it's, if, if not for God's intervention and in helping Israel, they would have been toast. Verse 2 says, if the Lord was not on our side, we would have been eaten alive. We would have been swept away by this, this mighty people as floodwaters, and they would have utterly destroyed us. We would have been chewed alive and, and eaten uh, by a predator. We were trapped in this snare, and we were left utterly helpless. And the picture here is vivid images meant to convey this horrible situation that they're in. Uh, the helplessness that they felt, being completely overpowered and, and overmatched, the horrible uh, just anxiety of knowing that death and suffering is approaching them step by step, day by day, the gruesomeness of the death that they would have had to re that they would have received, and the feeling of being utterly trapped and helpless. But the Lord was on their side. But the Lord was on our side. He helped them, and in verse 6, David said, Blessed is the Lord. Because of him, we've escaped. He helped us, and this doom didn't come upon us. And now as we look upon this event and see what God has done to his people, our ancestors, who are our family, we look and we, and we also need to praise God for what he's done. Because this salvation event that happened in history is still awesome. It is still great, and God is still worthy of praise for what he has done. And this psalm is a psalm of thanksgiving and praise. And David invites us as the people of God to praise God for what he has done. And what's interesting about this 
is that there's this idea in the Bible that what God has done in history, like the things that he has done in the past, aren't just good news for those people, but they're actually also really, really good news for us. Now why? Why is this good news for us? Well, let's imagine for a second here that Israel is eaten up. That David's line is wiped away. That the people of God are gone. What would this mean for us? Well, so many of God's promises and his goodness are tied up into his faithful, him being faithful to the promises that he has made to his people. That for them to be destroyed would make God's promises untrue. Where would the Messiah come from if David's line is destroyed? How would God's promises to Abraham and to Moses and to David come true? And if God isn't true and his word doesn't come true and he's shown to be unfaithful, then he would be a liar. He would be false. He would be unfaithful and not worthy to be followed and not worthy for us to worship. But because God is faithful here and in every other story and in every other time in history, we thousands of years later can look at this story and know God is continually and always faithful. Everything he promises will come true. He was faithful here when everything was stacked against him. When it all seemed like there was no way it would ever work out in the end. When it seemed like death was certain and destruction was certain, God saved them. And now the people of God for centuries after look at this story as they read this psalm and they know that we and our faith exists that our way of life is faithful and true, that our relationship with God is secure because God was faithful here. Meaning not only do they get the blessings of being saved, and truly they had great blessings of being saved, but we also have a blessing of seeing God at work, and thus our faith is increased, and our hope is increased, and we result, and the result of, of their salvation for them is the same for us. Praise God. Praise God for what he has done. Praise God. Uh, when I was in middle, no, high school, sorry. When I was in high school, uh, I was in a car with a guy who was a kind of a friend, not a close friend, kind of a friend. Uh, and he was driving very fast. He, he decided to race his buddy. And so we were kind of in the middle of nowhere and we were going over 100 miles an hour. And we got to this corner and he kind of like jerked the steering wheel just like a little tiny bit too hard. And then he corrected even harder and suddenly we're going over 100 miles an hour and we're on two wheels around a corner. And we start to veer towards the ditch and I am just like holding on for dear life on two wheels. And we get into this like U-shaped ditch and the only reason we didn't flip, I think, is because we were kind of like at this angle and then we hit the ditch and suddenly all four wheels were on the tire again or on the ground again and then like there was like a little hill and so then all of a sudden like, like countered our momentum. I don't know how physics work. And, uh, and suddenly, right, we start hitting this fence and it's a barbed wire fence and it has these like metal poles that are buried pretty deeply into the ground. But we hit probably like six of these and they just start popping through the bottom of the car, kind of like a toothpick does in a sandwich, right? Just right through. And so this whole thing takes like maybe two seconds, but we hit a tree come to a complete stop, I like look around and there's like poles in the, like just coming through that like pierced the top of the car. Uh, we're going over 100 miles an hour in two wheels and the car comes to a complete stop and I'm like, that was awesome. <laughs> and, and my friend, you know, like literally in like a shriek was like, my parents are going to kill me. Uh, so we'd scream different things. 
And, uh, you know, and I was like, oh, yeah, that does stink. That's, that's, you probably are going to get in big trouble. Uh, you know, but it didn't dawn on me until that night when I got home that I was like, man, I think I almost died. Like, like really close, actually, to, like, I probably should have died. Two of my friends in, in high school had died the previous two years, both in car crashes, and I felt very lucky to not be them. Uh, it wasn't until years later, and I had become a Christian at this point, you know, I'd become a Christian after this, and I drove to this spot years later, and I stopped and I pulled over, and I, I looked at the poles that we hit because they had built the fence, and they were a different color because the old poles were so different, like they were so old whenever this fence was built that they were like, the old poles were like green, and these ones were like yellow with white tips or something. And, and I was like, oh, yeah, we hit every one of those down. We almost died, and, and I just started to cry, and I just thanked God that I was still alive. Thanked God that I was still alive, that I got to know my sons because he saved me. And I remember telling my wife this story when I first met her and she said, oh my gosh, praise God that you're still alive. And and she's right. And and I feel like, you know, she's really lucky because now she gets the benefit of knowing me. Uh, And so... But, but the response, right, when you see what God has done, you don't even have to think about it. When you see what God has done, the result for us is to praise him. Thank you, Lord, that you've saved me. Thank you, Lord, that you are good to me. Thank you that I am alive. Thank you for saving me. And that's what this psalm is inviting us to do. It's to be the type of people in this world that look to what God has done. And the response to seeing God's goodness, his salvation, the good things that the Lord has done, the the mark of the people of God is praise and worship and glory and honor to our God. For he is good. Blessed is the Lord who has not given us over to destruction and carnage. Blessed the Lord. We, the people right now, we have things to praise God about. Blessed be God for our own existence. Blessed be the God for the bounty of children just a few rooms over who are such a blessing to us. Blessed be God who who, who has given us faith, who has been kind to our community and to this church for his care and his delight. This psalm shapes us to be the type of people who praise God for the good things that he has done. And that is who we are. For the children who are still here, if you, are a, if you are a child and in this service, can you remember, that's not a real word, can you remember times that God has been good to you? Can you remember that times that, that your parents have been good to you? And would you, do, would, you, would you bless them when you go home today and tell your parents, I was so thankful for the time that you have done this? Or would you tell them a story about what God has done in your life and just tell them, tell people about the God who is good? So the first thing, we look to God and praise for the things that he has done. But we also look to God in this this psalm in our times of trouble. Verse 8, David says, Our help is in the name of the Lord, who made heaven and earth. The message of this psalm, the thing that David wants to teach and for his people to know, and the reason he wants them to sing this is because he wants them to know that the help that Yahweh gives, the help that God gives is more potent and more real than any other help in life. That the help that God gives is more real and more potent and more powerful than any other help in life, and it's his help that we ultimately need. For David to say that our help is in the name of the Lord is for David to be saying that that God's personal presence and his active care 
is the help that he gives to the people of God. His personal presence and his active care is, is the help that we really need. It's the help we really need. In another psalm, David says, some people put their trust, or some nations put their trust for help in horses and chariots. In other words, he says, some people, you know, they, they put their, their hope for safety and for security and for life in the apex of military technology, right? That's what a horse and a chariot was. It was like the tank or the nuclear bomb. He said, some nations, you know, they put their, they put their hope in those weapons or those, that thing for security. But he says, not for us. The people of God, he says, we put our trust in the name of the Lord. We put our trust in the name of the Lord. In the true reality that believes from the heart that God is personally present and active and at work in his people's lives for his people's good. Now, why would they put their trust in the name of the Lord? Why, why, would, why would they not trust in anything else? Because this Lord, this Yahweh, is the one who made heaven and earth. And what he means by that is, is God's power is universal. Meaning, meaning there isn't a single inch, there isn't a single space in this universe, in all of creation, that God's power is not ultimately over. Not a single spot that God's power is not ultimately over. Not a space in this universe that God's power cannot touch. But also that his power is infinite. It's unbounded. It's endless. He makes, upholds, and governs, governs everything. He speaks and universes are made. He breathes and things that don't have life spring into life. Why would we trust in anything else? He made the heavens and earth. And it's because this Yahweh, this God was on their side that they weren't swallowed up, that they weren't rolled over, that they weren't chewed up alive and seized from the snare. Instead, God rolled over his enemies like a mighty wave and he saved his people from their destruction. What they needed was the help that only God could give. In the name, it's in this name, this presence, this God who was their help in all times of trouble. And it's this God who David wants his people to sing to and to say in their own hearts, that's where our help is. It's in the name of the Lord. Some of you know that when I was um, 21 years old, I, I moved to China to be a missionary. Um, and I felt this sense of God's call uh, for me to go and to do ministry. And I, I, I you know, didn't know his word perfectly, but I knew his word and I knew his promises and I tried as best as I could to live by them and to follow the Lord. But February came around of my second year. February, uh, I was 23, February came around and rent was due. And in China, the way that you pay rent is you pay it once a year. Uh, and so like it was like, I think it was like 2,000 kwai, uh, which is like 200 something dollars a month. So you came with a stack of cash like this and you felt crazy walking around with that. But I needed to pay $3,200 for my, my yearly rent, but I had $800. And I had to pay it in five days. And I needed that money to come, and I was terrified. Uh, when I went to bed that night, knowing that I needed to pay this soon, and I, knowing that the deadline for, to get the money to me was, was really close, uh, I, I went to bed, and I did not sleep. I prayed, but mostly I just cried. I was angry with God. But then I would be hopeful for a second. Um, and then I would lose all that hope, and I believed, you know, that, that God would take care of me. I was like, man, have I been unfaithful in some way, Lord? Or wait, are you being unfaithful? And then I got angry. Why would you call me here for me to just run out of money? I'm trying to serve you. 
I believed you were going to take care of me, but I didn't even have enough money to buy a plane ticket. What was I going to do? How would I get home? And I was beginning to lose hope. I remember it like yesterday. And as the sun came up, I hadn't slept. I began to plan my next moves. You know, who should, what missionaries should I go with this sort of deep sense of shame? What other missionaries can I go ask for money? And should I ask for money for rent or should I ask money for a plane ticket to go home forever? I was ready to quit. When I woke up, though, I checked my email. And I got an email that said this. It said, Nate, funny story. It said, a man walked into our store or our office about a month ago, and he asked what this place was. I told him we support and care for missionaries while they're in the field. And he said, well, how about that? Who would have thought that a place like this would exist in Kerrville, Texas? And then he left. Two days ago, he came back. He said he wanted to support a missionary. He had, they asked, who would you like to support? And he said, well, I think there's missionaries in China. What about one of them? So they grabbed a book of, of all of our profiles of missionaries in China and photos, and he began to scroll through. And when he got to your picture, he said, well, that guy looks too young to be a missionary, so I guess I'll give to that guy. So just to let you know, just to let you know, tomorrow you'll have $5,000 show up in your account. He wanted to remain anonymous. Just know some guy came in a cowboy hat and gave you $5,000. I thought you'd want to know. Man, I don't think I ever wept so hard in my life. And I can tell you something about this story. I am not the hero. Uh, I'm not a great man. Most days I don't even feel like I'm a good man. In fact, I was ready to quit ministry, to give up on everything. But God helped me. I cried out to him for help and he did help me. And the hero of this psalm is actually the Lord. And the hero of David's life is the Lord. And the hero of Israel and this story and their salvation is the Lord. The hero of the church is the Lord. The hero of your life and your story is ultimately the Lord. And the, day, the one that David wants the people of God to turn to in times of trouble, his name is Yahweh. And his help is both potent and more real than anything else. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. What this doesn't mean here is that God will take away all of your problems or that he'll do exactly what you ask if you just ask for help. God is our help, remember, in a, in a world where sin reigns and evil is done continually. He is the only hope for help in a world where sin and death reigns. Remember in this story that everyone eventually dies. Many in Israel remained poor or suffered crime and violence. This isn't teaching the prosperity gospel. What this does mean, though, is that God ultimately works everything for good, that he ultimately works everything for good to those who are his covenant people. He is working on behalf for our good. He is faithful to all his promises, and whatever ultimately happens, God is at work in the midst of our trials, and history ends, remember, with redemption and restoration. The story ends with restoration of the people of God. But also notice this psalm. This psalm is a hope for a people. It's a hope for a people. The whole thing is plural. This, this, this psalm is hope for a connected whole people of God. It teaches us that God cares about us, the people of God, his church, his people. And God helps us. He's our help. He's on our side. He cares about us. And I think sometimes we are so quick to turn every Bible passage to ultimately being about me that we forget that God is shaping in us, 
that we are deeply connected and responsible for not only the people in this room, which we are, but also for the people outside of it. As Tim Keller says, the teaching of the Bible on humility is not to think less about ourselves. It's not to think, you know, oh, I'm a worm, you know, I'm worthless, you know, who could ever love me? That's, that's not what humility is. What the Bible teaches about humility is not we think less about ourselves, but we think about ourselves less. That God cares for us, moves me to not be so self-consumed and self-obsessed with my prayers, uh, for all of my prayers to be about me and my heaven and my eternal life and my life and my finances and me, myself, and I. But when we, as the people of God, see that he is shaping in us, one another, a community, we declare to the world who he is, that he is the God of a people, that he is the God of, of our church. And as we hear our neighbor singing this psalm, or as we study this psalm together, the effect of it, again, is remember, it shapes us together to be the people who turn to God together. What a witness to the world that when everybody else turns to money or weapons or fame or whatever it is we tune to for security and for help, when we, the people of God, turn first to him, and we say, that's our help, that's our God, because that is more real and more potent than any other help in the world. Now, uh, as all of you know, uh, I'm a PCA reformed pastor. Uh, and so is, you know, Bradford, and so is uh, Andy Wood, and so is Brian Davis. And one thing I love about being reformed is Christ-centered preaching. We all do it. You know, Bradford tries. The rest of us, we do a great job. Uh, is he here? All right, well... Hopefully he's watching somewhere. <laughs> but, but, but when I learned about Christ-centered preaching, I mean, I ate that stuff up. In seminary, I was like, I am here to learn how to preach grace and the gospel and be faithful to the scriptures, and this is the best I've ever seen. But I also went to seminary frustrated at times because sometimes I felt that we were so quick to preach Christ in our sermons and so quick to, to look for him uh, in Bible studies that we actually miss that these texts, especially in the Old Testament, mattered to those people too. It mattered to them and it helped them even though Jesus wasn't around. And I hope that you see from this sermon that this text was really actually helpful to these people. How in a world where enemies and nations with tons of power rise up to kill, steal, and destroy is still our world. Where suffering is rampant and power is used by so many to do great evil, but that God throughout all of history has acted to help and defend his people. His help is real and it is needed and we who live in the same world need the same help, the same hope, and to turn to the same God. And when he does, we need to praise him. But I also find that it is impossible to look at this text and to see a God who stands literally besides his people and saves them from a mighty enemy that they could never defeat themselves, who comes and helps them in their deepest needs and just not see Jesus. Our help is in the name of the Lord, says David, but if he only knew who his ancestor would be and what David's greater son would come and one day do. For Jesus came and showed us that our truest and most greatest enemies were not men who could merely kill the body, 
but sin and judgment and death and the devil, which no man could resist, which no man can overpower. It was one thing to be killed by an army, but completely another to then find oneself standing under the righteous judgment of a holy God. And it's from this, this enemy, sin and death and judgment, that man cries out to God in his greatest and deepest needs. And it's for this reason that Jesus came down to help mankind. And it's here we see that truly God is on the side of his people. For it wasn't for him, for if it wasn't for him, we too would have been swallowed alive. But as Jesus, whose arms are stretched wide and nails are pierced into his hands and feet, we see him completely defenseless as God's judgment and wrath wash over him like a raging wave for our sin. And death eats him alive. It's Jesus who was whipped by the teeth and metal barbs of nails and iron and bitten with thorns so that we might not be eaten by a predator we could never resist. It's he who was betrayed into the snare of an enemy so that we might escape the judgment that we truly deserved. It's Jesus, the God-man, who left heaven and came to our side to help us in our deepest troubles and needs, and he completely and utterly helps us, saving us from sin, death, damnation, and the devil. It is he who saves us from enemies we could never defeat, and we didn't have to lift a finger because he went to the cross which we deserved, and where he pays the ultimate price so that we don't have to, and he tastes the death that our sin requires. Our help is in the name of the Lord, and his name is Jesus Christ. And it's he who we praise for what he has done. It's he who we praise for what he continues to do, and it's him, and I promise, look to him for your help, because he'll come. He always does. He's always there. He is faithful, even to giving his own life. Look to him and praise him and turn to him for help. Let's pray. Father, we we thank you for your son, for your son, Jesus. We thank you, Lord, that you have been faithful to us when we are so quickly to turn to other things for help. Lord, would you shape our hearts to be the type of people who declare to the world by by where we go to for help and hope that Jesus is Lord. We thank you that every part of this is true and real. And we ask, Lord, that you would be with us. We thank you and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.